Mission incoming. Well, well, who the Potomac Picture Show? Let's do it. Episode 0088. It's a double-double. The title of this episode is I'd Rather Go Blind Than Be Dancing With Myself. You've entered the Potable Picture Show, your podcast dedicated to motion pictures and drinking liquors. We approach the movies with a boozy attitude. And when we talk about movies, we don't just talk about the movies and movie news. We also delve into the themes and topics behind the movies. Uh, just anything that's sort of a brain association, anything that triggers an idea or a conversation. I'm Kevin McRae. I'm the founder of the Sierra Nevada Movie Club. And I'm here to tell you that this podcast may contain adult-type language. Sometimes if I stub my toe, I don't just say G's or cheese, although I should. Uh, on this episode, it will just be me and me alone, much like Colin Farrell in a lot of the movie The Lobster. I will be out there in the world alone looking for a partner so I don't get turned into an animal. So if you haven't guessed it by now, we will be covering the movie The Lobster in feature presentation. We do have a few other things along the way. Some movie news, some booze news, uh, Cocktail Corner. And uh, I was going to play a game called, uh, what was it, Guess, Guess, Hide, no, Touch, touch Guess, Think, Win. Uh, but, you know, you can't really play a game by yourself. If you do, and you do it in public, you might get arrested. So, let's head into the cantina, get episode 88 started. Will you follow me? Let's go. Oh man, abruptly bursting in to the VIP room at the top of the cantina. It is me. Um, you may hear a little bit of background noise uh, once in a while. Hopefully it's not too distracting. You may, you may have heard it the past couple episodes as we approach summer. Sometimes the neighbors have their air conditioning units going. And I've got my fine quality professional microphone that may pick that up. Also, we've got people playing outside enjoying summertime activities such as swimming, um, chase, um, poop throw, bicycle, skateboard. And um, all those things, that is what happens when you live in such a despicable area is where the cantina is located. Uh, cantina may be moving again soon. Uh, we'll see. Maybe a quieter area. Who knows? The cantina's always got to have at least be in some sort of proximity of trouble because, you know, who else is going to service the scoundrels? 
And by the way, today's sponsor want to let you know this episode is brought to you by Fukurupt Vodka. You're not drunk unless you're Fukurupt. Let's uh, get in our first segment, which is film history. In film history. Gosh darn it, before we get to film history, and I often forget this for a guy that likes to drink so much, I forget to remind everyone, if you're a new listener, or you are a long-time listener, anytime you hear this sound... Uh, that's, that's fine to hit this baby. That means it's your turn to drink along with me at home, wherever you are, in the car, in the school, in a hospital, in surgery, fighting crime, turning into an animal, looking for love, or being happy alone... I'm drinking right now 2015 Vintage Ale from Trader Joe's. This actually isn't a bad beer. Um, it does keep for a little while. This was a birthday present for me this year, and I'm going to be drinking it right now. Please drink along with me at home, whether it's your milk, soy milk, protein powder, beer, Coors Light, Miller Light, <laughs> monkey blood, anything. Drink along with me. Mm. That was a healthy gulp of beer as it spills down my chin. So today in film history, um, back in 1934, we had the character Donald Duck, created by Dick Lundy. Donald Duck made his film debut in Silly Symphony's cartoon, The Wise Little Hen. According to the book, The Chronological Donald, the character of Donald Duck was created to provide an outlet for the antisocial behavior that Mickey Mouse no longer was really allowed to indulge in because he became um, basically a, a family-friendly mascot. So he couldn't get away with... He had to be a positive role model. So um, because of that, we had Donald, who was usually found clad in a sailor hat and shirt. He was free to blow his top in a variety of colorful ways whenever he was outwitted by any number of antagonists. Antagonists. Donald Duck was one of the first serialized characters whose popularity... Um, actually stemmed from him being a victim of others' actions. And in the 40s, Donald Duck became Disney's most popular character. He appeared in a number of wartime propaganda films, and his visage was painted on many Allied aircraft. In later years, Donald Duck was one of the only characters licensed by Dis Disney to represent teams and organizations. He is used as a mascot for both the U.S. Coast Guard as well as the University of Oregon, for whom he is their football team's fighting duck. So thanks, Donald, to you. Let's have a drink. <laughs> That's fine to hit this baby. Mm. All right. So that is your history lesson today. Donald Duck, he's appeared in movies, right? We've got Disney movies with the Disney characters. It qualifies as this day in film history. Let's head into some further news. newsman will come on and he'll go he'll go good evening everybody this is the newsman whatever he says he's not gonna say that. <laughs> and he goes our top story tonight well let's start with we're a little alcohol heavy in our news today let's make this our top story um so i reported recently 
that the Anheuser-Busch InBev company, the world's largest brewer, they uh, they had made headlines by announcing that they would tempor- temporarily rename Budweiser as the name America. Now, Anheuser-Busch InBev, now they look to finalize a $107 billion merger with Sab Biller, the world's Sab Miller. Did I say Biller? Sab Miller, which is the world's a second largest brewer after Anheuser-Busch InBev. Recent reports say that antitrust authorities are likely to approve the deal by the end of this month. Um, there's just a lot of things going on along here, uh, you know, that are um, scary. If you are into a democratic beer world of beer choices, of things that are b- besides the, the Budweiser empire. So, for example, not only is Anheuser-Busch InBev the biggest beer distributor in the United States, um, I'm sorry, and not only are they the largest brewer, they are also the biggest uh, beer distributor in the United States. In several states, the, the law allows the company to distribute its own beer, and most markets really only have one or two distributors. The company has also recently increased its control over the beer distribution industry by purchasing five independent distributors. Um, These acquisitions prompted a Department of Justice inquiry towards the end of last year. So Anheuser-Busch InBev, they can focus on building its brand while effectively and, most importantly, legally shutting out competing craft brands. The company, which already controls 45% of the domestic beer market, they encourage independent distributors to focus on selling its brand, the Anheuser-Busch brand, over other brands and craft brands. The company, Anheuser-Busch, recently introduced its Voluntary Anheuser-Busch Incentive for Performance Program, and this program pays distributors on a sliding scale based on the share of its beers that they sell. So, you know, you are, um, in in effect, you lose money by selling less Budweiser and selling other beers. So sell as much Budweiser as you can. The Department of Justice is also examining this program. Um, Distribution isn't the only way that Anheuser-Busch InBev uh, are making their war on the small brewers. Um, Since its merger with Sab Miller was announced... The company has bought several well-regarded craft brewers around the country, including California's Golden Road, Arizona's Four Peaks, Colorado's Breckenridge, and Virginia's Devil's Backbone. These takeovers were preceded by the acquisitions of Chicago's Goose Island, which I didn't know that Budweiser had bought, um, Oregon's Tin Barrel, Washington's Elysian, and Michigan's Virtue Cider. A merger between these two largest brewers would give the new global corporation an estimated value of $64 billion in annual revenue, and it would give them a control of 29% of the global beer market. Um, so that's interesting. Let's let's stick with the booze news, something uh, maybe a little less dismal and a little bit more whimsical. Whimsical. That is how you say that word. It is pronounced whiz, whimsical. God damn it. What's wrong with me? Let's hit a baby. 
baby. Thanks, Ethan, for letting me hit this baby. Ethan is not with us tonight. And neither is Where in the World is Beer Maker Matt? Beer Maker Matt is playing softball. There's your clue. I gave you a clue last week. Said, look for a Mexican looking beer maker Matt somewhere south of the border wearing his poncho and hat. Now look for him at the a baseball diamond near you. If you find him, you win the game. Uh, next news. Oh, I didn't drink my beer. See, now I'm being like heathen. In tribute to heathen, I hit a baby and I didn't even drink my beer. What the hell is wrong with me? That is worth a double punishment. Oh, yeah. Oh, there we go. So, um, this story, Bruges, 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 Belgium. Sorry, I my uh, my international intellect mostly extends to Asia, uh, but I can mispronounce words in any language. That's not a problem. Bruges, Bruges, Belgium. We'll call it Bruges. Um, the idea may have seemed mad. But after all, the beer is called the Madman of Bruges, or Bruzat in Dutch. If Heathen was here, she could help us with our Dutch. Um, with the help of crowdfunding efforts, the dream of building a beer pipeline through the Belgian city of Bruges is becoming real. Quote, You have to be a bit crazy, like the beer, to do such a project. I just had the money for that, and I liked it. So I went crazy and gave the money to the brewery, said restaurant owner Philippe Leloup, who poured in $11,000 into the pipeline. Brewer Javier Vaneste got the idea four years ago to pump beer from his Bruges brewery to a bottling plant outside of town and a pipeline. Instead of having hundreds of trucks blighting the cobblestone street of the UNESCO-protected medieval city. What at first seemed like an outrageous dream began to seem possible when Vaneste started talking to local beer enthusiasts. Beginning in the fall, the pipeline will start pumping some 4,000 liters of beer an hour towards the bottling plant two miles away in an industrial zone. And this is what uh, Vaneste said. He said, we have several formulas. I think he meant, um, what do you call milestones or whatever when you're doing like Kickstarter? Um, I can't remember what those are called, but he's got bronze, silver, and gold. And he says, for example, if you put in 7,500 euros, which is $8,000, $8,350, you will receive for the rest of your days, every day, one bottle of Bruzat. For many, that offer was hard to refuse. About 10% of the total $4.5 million investment for the pipeline had actually been financed through the crowdfunding. So a couple things I think is interesting about that. Uh, one, it just seems like a uh, something that would be in the plot to a Simpsons cartoon or something. This pipeline of beer, what do they say, two, two miles long? And also, how sanitary is that really? I, I mean, if, if you're like a, one of these beer distributors you talk about or... Uh, um, one of those, one of the jobs for a lot of these guys is to go in and do the um, like pipe clean. I don't know if you call it pipe cleaning, but they clean at a bar when you have a tap that usually runs several feet, 20, 30, 40, 50 feet into their um, cold storage, their walk-in freezer, you know, where you can keep the beer cold. And part of their job is to make sure that those 
that 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 tubing that piping stays clean you don't want your um your beer to taste like old rubber and 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 rat hair so a two mile long pipe and you don't expect again a homer simpson like plot of someone like my brother um on his way through belgium to make his own private tap source off of there um it just it just seems so cartoonish having this pipeline and not you know how people in apartments or wherever they'll they'll steal cable or siphon off cable you'll see all this illegal wiring uh, you can imagine like some sort of um, amateur piping branching off from this pipeline along the way down into someone's house. That would be great. I would I would love to have a private, even even though again I, I already specified my my apprehension about the cleanliness. But it would be great to have your hot water, your cold water, and then your beer tap there in the sink. Fantastic. All right, last news. Let's give you a little bit of movie news here. What do I have to tell you about? Um, so there's this renaissance in uh, for all this all this uh, attack and critique about not having enough um, characters for women, not having enough characters for people of color. We are starting to see this flippy floppy routine of um, really trying to inject women into a lot of roles. For example, the Ghostbusters movie with an all-female cast, basically flipping the cast, because we do have the handsome um, Helmsworth in there playing the uh, part formerly uh, portrayed by Annie Potts. But we have the Ocean's Eleven remake with the all-female cast. And uh, we've known for some time that Sandra Bullock will play the lead in this. Um, But now we've recently uh, got the announcement of a couple other castmates. So according to Showbiz 411, or 411, (laughs) it seems that uh, we've gotten a Helena Bonham Carter. She will have an undisclosed role in this film. You may know her from uh, Bellatrix. Tricks Lestrange in the Harry Potter films. Also, she um, was in one of my probably top 30 movies, Fight Club. So she's in there. We've got Mindy Kaling. You probably know her from the Mindy Project and um, other things. She played Disgust in Inside Out. She is signed on um, to the franchise. Also, actress uh, Kate Blanchett has been confirmed. But it's looking less and less like we're going to get mega superstar Jennifer Lawrence on. Which kind of sucks because one of the cool things about Ocean's Eleven, the remake, the one that came out after the Sinatra Rat Pack version, was all the star power. Because you don't see that anymore in films because of salaries and things like that. And I believe actually a lot of the guys in the Ocean's Eleven agreed to take pay cuts so we could get your Brad Pitt and your George Clooney's and all those together. I don't know how much that you can compare a George Clooney and a and a and a Brad Pitt to a Mindy Kaling. Not that we really have any, and that's why it sucks that we may not get Jennifer Lawrence, although I think she is okay, better than average. I I do not think she is as good as as some people say. She still has superstar power. I would like to see this film filled with that kind of, um, you know, going back to the Rat Pack, that, that old style glamour and, and, and just not the, the spectacle you don't see anymore, the over the top. 
Um, I, I like Helen and Bonham Carter, but I mean, who nowadays, who in their, who of these millennials knows who she is? Um, I had some thought. I mean, I would love to have Jennifer Lawrence in there, uh, even though Angelina Jolie's stars starting to fade. Uh, she'd be good. Actually, find some way, even though it would never happen, find some way to get Angelina Jolie and uh, Jennifer Aniston in there together. Maybe don't. Maybe you, you you do it in a way where they're not even um, in scenes together. They're not even on set together. Maybe you have like one scene where they're together, similar to Caddyshack, where uh, Chevy Chase hated Bill Murray and they refused to even talk to each other. But they had one scene together, and it was it was good. Make that in that that that's a spectacle. Let's get in. Um, Let's get in Melissa McCarthy, you know, the, the comedic element. Let's get in some of the big big comedians of the day. Let's get Ronda Rousey in as um, one of the badasses. She's She's been acting. Let's get in um, Taylor Swift. She's been in some movies. She's like a big star. Let's put some star power in this film. Not just Mindy Kaling and other people that no one cares about or knows about or matters anymore. Um, I... Uh, I don't know. Is do we have eleven superstar women? I mean, not like the Ocean's Eleven, where every single person in there was a superstar. I mean, what it, you, you had uh, you, you had some some C level, B level people in there as well. But anyways, all right. Let's um let's head into cocktail corner. I am going to actually take a pause here on the podcast to go gather up my materials, and I'll join you on the other flippity flop. In a cocktail corner. I see America drinking the fabulous cocktails I make. America's getting yeah. stinking on something I stir or shake. Okay, this week in Cocktail Corner, we're going to experiment with a new drink in here called the Wonka Colada. been experimenting with uh, pina colada type drinks recently. There's nothing that says like a tropical vacation or brings you away to a tropical vacation state of mind like a rum-based cocktail. So tr- uh, traditionally, pina colada is um, rum-based, couple kinds of rum, some coconut syrup. That's about it, maybe a squeeze of lime. We're going to do a Wonka Colada, and um, what I should do with a lot of these drinks, these experiments, is I really should keep a drink notebook, just like a cookbook or whatever else, because as you hear on the podcast, there's sometimes that we say, oh, it needs a little more of this, a little less of that experiment. It's like having a, um, you know, your little uh, nature guidebook where you're taking notes or making maps or whatever. So this version of the Colada is uh, it's going to be interesting. It's going to probably be a little bit stronger than usual. I'm not going to blend it. Um, so what I've done is I've gotten a real big Stein style mug. I filled it about halfway up with ice and I've put in a handful of frozen pineapple to um, constitute some more ice and some chill factor. I'm not going to blend it. It'll be in there as a, as a snack if I want to chew on it after the after I'm done drinking it. And I am going, I'm not going to give you exact measurements here, but we're going to put in about an ounce and a half of spiced rum. Uh, Again, uh, pina colada is usually, I think, dark rum and white rum, but I'm putting in spiced rum. I'm a big fan of spiced rum. And I'm going to put in about an ounce and a half of 
the white rum, the light rum. All right, I'm gonna put in about um, an ounce of this milk dud infused vodka that we've talked about on the podcast before where we've taken some milk dud candy and let it soak in vodka and then filtered out all the chocolate and caramel. So this is like the Wonka, put in about an ounce, maybe three quarters of an ounce, not a lot. Gonna put in a squirt, not very much of this cream of coconut. This is what usually constitutes a lot of the pina colada is this coconut cream. If you um, wanna go as like a skinny version, you can always use coconut milk or coconut water. So I'm not gonna put a lot in here because we already have the milk dud. And then to, um, again, further the idea of Wonka and also to take away a little bit of sweetness anyway, we're going to put in and also kick up the, the, the alcohol. So this vodka is going to kick up the uh, alcohol proof on this cocktail. I'm going to put in a splash of 99 cinnamon, maybe a little less than half an ounce. And finally because that's a lot of alcohol. I'm gonna fill the rest with pineapple orange juice. All right, and then I'm gonna, since I'm not blending it, I'm gonna give it a stir here, especially to make sure that that coconut cream is mixed in there. That stuff's likely to float to the bottom. Just for color, um, I think it would be nice to garnish this on the side with a wedge of lime. We've got kind of a, um, right now the color is sort of a tropical, like a mango iced tea, like a tropical tea that you might get somewhere when you're out having brunch. So let me get a little picture of this guy here. And I'm going to go ahead and have a sip of this. Uh, let's drink to this week. Um, let's drink to being creative. Um. A lot of things. I am just finishing up typing up an original play that's going to be performed in August. It's about, it's pretty short. It's not even, it's less than a one act. It's going to be maybe 15 pages. Mostly comedic, somewhat experimental. But anyway, let's drink to just being creative and making stuff. So yeah, you can't really taste the um, the alcohol in that at all. Even though I didn't put that much cinnamon, you can taste that. Very, very deceptive. Much like the Long Islands that we had last week or any Long Island in general. So tasty beverage. We'll be sipping on that the rest of the day. And I'll be sipping on that actually while we head into feature presentation. So let's go. So in feature presentation this week, we'll be talking about the film The Lobster. 
actually came out in 2015. Uh, didn't reach Reno until the last couple weeks. I don't know that it really released um, widely or even smallly <laughs> in the U.S. until recently. This was a film that um, had a lot of different international backers. I think it was released internationally last year. It was actually co-produced by companies from Ireland, the United Kingdom, Greece, France, and the Netherlands. This film had a runtime of 118 minutes, and it was the first um, feature-length film, or first English English language feature film by the director Jorgis uh, Lanthimos. Um, he had, in truth, made a uh, an English film before called The Necktie, but that was a short film. So this was his first English language feature film. So he's he's a Greek director. We did get a bit of Greek music and, and things in the film as well. Um, just a warning to you guys, if you're not aware, you don't know, this, this feature presentation uh, every week, it may contain some spoilers. So be aware of that. We don't try to ever like give away major, major things like the ending. But we, we, we will possibly um, talk about some plot points. So... If that is something that will bother you if you plan on seeing The Lobster and, and you don't want that bothered, then you may want to skip about the next 15 minutes or so. So a brief a synopsis of this film. It's set in a dystopian universe. Uh, the film is set in a city known only as The City, where singles are given 45 days to find a romantic partner, or otherwise they are turned into an animal um, of their choosing, actually. It stars Colin Farrell and Rachel Weisz, and um, that's really all I have to say about the plot. Um, Colin Farrell did gain 40 pounds for this role. So he wasn't your usually usual sexy Colin Farrell like you may have seen most recently in True Detective or something like that. Here is a quote from the director. He says, I think I did, I did want to make a romantic film. I'm not sure if it was intentional from the very beginning, but I'm sure somewhere while writing the script, it became, it became intentional. I wanted to have a real love story. I started thinking for the first time of using music in my film. In any case, I would never make a film that has only one thing. Even if it's my warmest, most romantic film, I still want to have some of the more cynical views of things, showing the irony and absurdity of things that we consider normal. So this film definitely had that. I, I would not typically classify this in any way as a date film, a chick flick, a romantic film. It has a love story in it, but it is still very pessimistic in the way it looks at things. Both, at, I think, at the way that it looks at relationships, the way it looks at um, government, the way it looks at social norms, the way it looks at being single, the way it looks at, um, basically like I said, but social standards and how that permeates society how it affects things, how it affects free thinking. Um, all of this was in there. It was uh, as it, it was very, um, even though there's a lot of animals in here, it, it, be, not just because of that, I mean, it was very Animal Farm. It was very, um, everything sucks, everything's um, clinical, everything's, um, you know, regulated, um, government's too powerful kind of thing. Uh, one thing I thought was interesting, I didn't realize this before, but this director, he has a very minimalistic way in directing, at least as far as dealing with actors. 
So he's really concerned about the setup of shots and things like that. But he doesn't, he does very little interaction with the actors. Um, he doesn't, he's not available for saying, you know, going over things like motivation. What am I doing here? What does this line mean? That's fine to hit this baby. Ow! Sorry, I had to take a break there for a second to drink. Um, the actors said this was very unnatural for them. And um, they did say, admittedly, it was it was better than the polar opposite of having too much control. Basically, line reading every line, dictating every single thing that happens. Um, the guy did say, I think he said to um, John C. Riley, if you do something... Because uh, John C. Riley said, I don't really know how to do this kind of acting. I've seen any other films in... Um, and, and, uh, and if you guys know who John C. Riley is, he's like the goofy, he's like Will Ferrell's opposite in, in Step Brothers. Um, and the director said, don't worry, I'll, I'll tell you if you're doing something wrong. And I, I guess if I was walking into a role, that would help hearing that. But also if I trusted the director. So a lot of the stuff I've done, I haven't got a lot of feedback. It's been more about making sure that you just get the, the, the scene shot. A lot of it's about, um the background and getting it framed but then there hasn't been a lot of feedback about how or to say a line or even another take and I know that I've never really been like good enough to get it on one take so I, I don't know for me I, I I like some feedback so that might feel weird to me being on set um, they said the director looked unhappy most of the time and was just frowning and and that seems weird but I guess if the actors on set have like a good bond or a good vibe, they can kind of throw things off of each other. Because he basically, he they, did, they didn't do any rehearsal or preparation as far as the actors did for the film. They were dropped right into filming. Um, the director even said, don't spend very much time with the script. And, and that's, you know, in some ways um, a, a, a technique, a natural technique, like to, to get more in mind of, of, of the characters where these characters that don't know anyone are just dropped into this hotel where they're supposed to meet other singles and it's very um, uncomfortable and new and, and stressful uh, it might be a good way to get that emotion although I don't know how intentional that that was this film it had a lot of themes and feelings and um, things you could take out of it it dealt with loss um, different kinds of loss divorce losing a mother it dealt a lot with the relationships, what makes them work, what's important, um, what's compatible, how important is compatibility, what makes two people compatible. Uh, another quote from the director here, he says, The film is structured in an open way. Then people will lean towards one of these elements according to who they are, what their experiences are, and even their mood. Uh, Lathamos... Um, insists that he wasn't interested in promoting one particular theme. And he says the film, um, it gives back to you whatever you bring into it. Uh, he says, quote, That's what I find interesting about making films like this. It allows people to not only have their interpretation, but how they engage with it very much is up to them as well. So I agree. I mean, it's, it's not to try to elevate this to like an art piece, but a lot of art, like a lot of just what you bring to it is what you're going to get. A lot of different people are going to get different things out of it. This film wasn't very rosy looking at anything. Um, although it wasn't completely negative either, but you might look and identify with certain things about the people being single. You might look and identify about certain things about people in the relationships, both the good and the bad. Um, you might 
identify with different characters and their motivations and what they want and what makes them tick. I, I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting. A lot of the film was very ambiguous. There was, and this is a kind of film or kind of thing that could drive people crazy. There's some lines. Colin Farrell's character turns another character um, into an animal, and he says he turns her into the kind of animal that no one wants to be. Um, or no, he turns her into an animal, but he never he never says uh, he never says. But there is another part where they say that they um, were were they they um, threaten Colin Farrell with turning him into an animal that no one wants to be. But we never find out what these things are. We we're kind of left up to our imagination about that. Also, even though I'm not going to talk about the ending and the spoiler, the ending is is very ambiguous. It's one of those endings um, similar, you know, in ways to like um, uh, where where you don't know where it, it goes to black, and you don't know if it's a happy ending or a sad ending, or even what the um, ultimate outcome of the ending is. Like like Inception. Were they still in Inception? Were they not in Inception? That kind of ending can can drive some people crazy. I, I personally like these kinds of endings. I, I like to think that the director did have in his mind what his version of the ending was and that it's not just a cop-out, but I think it is still interesting to leave it up to the audience to decide as a detective or bringing to the table their own experiences, what they think that ending was. Uh, Colin Farrell has a quote here talking about uh, the movie. He says, I think people have always been pushed towards partnering up. We try to escape our loneliness as much as possible because it sucks to be alone. It seems like a very natural thing. I'm not saying it's unnatural to be alone, but it seems very natural to want to share your life with somebody. But he does go on to talk about how much of that drive is internal versus socially driven. So I think as a people, uh, as a person, um, as a species, we are socially, uh, we're, we're social animals, we're social groups. Um, it's, it's how we've evolved as hunters. Uh, it never worked to, you know, we weren't, I don't, we weren't solitary predators. However, nowadays, um, besides that natural inclination to be social, I think there is a social force to, uh, an outside force to, to make some of that artificial. You might have one of these friends, usually a girl, although not to be sexist, it could be a guy or a girl, that, you know, is always a matchmaker, always trying to set someone up. And it's, it's just like that there can be some sort of stigma about being single or alone and um and i think a lot of it even goes into our human psychology at this point so if you're a woman or even a man and you're walking down a dark street and a guy in a dark hoodie and and is coming towards you you might feel a little apprehensive but if he's with a woman um, you're probably going to feel a little less apprehensive. I don't know what that is. There's just a natural suspicion towards those uh, people that are alone. As I said, there was a lot of ambiguity. There was a lot of metaphor in this film. You could watch it for what it was. And, uh, well, one thing that was interesting. So you're basically just dropped into the film from the beginning and just told, like, here's the premise Here's the rules of this reality. There's no history. There's no where is this. There's no where did this come from. It's just 
the reality we're dropped into is that you are not allowed to be single and you get turned into an animal if you don't. They don't explain why, any of that. And uh, for being very preposterous, it's, uh, the, 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 the reactions, the setting, the reality of the film is very realistic. So again, you could just watch it for that from that side of thing. But I, again, I think there's a lot of metaphor and interpretation between, um, say, the management of the hotel, those that are uh, couples, those that are single, um, different different ideas in there. It, it was one of those kinds of movies that, although I, I thought it was very good, it did it did drag a little bit for me a couple times, a little lengthy. But it was a type of movie, it's getting good good reviews, but some people are just going to walk out, not, not only just saying it's strange or weird, because that's normal, but just like that movie was a big piece of garbage. And, and a lot of that's just because they just didn't get it. I mean, some of it is going to be, it's not your cup of tea. It, the, the film, um, I think, intentionally tries to make you uncomfortable in obvious ways and less obvious ways, and that's... Um, like a, um, a kind of a Breckian response of not letting the audience get too comfortable. Like this is the type of film I don't think my mother would like too much because it's it's just unnerving a little bit, even in the good parts or the the, the less bad, the less um, sadistic parts of the film. But there's I was reading some message boards and, and and some people were just like, why is this movie getting such good reviews? This was the biggest piece of garbage. Uh, or, you know, they were asking questions and, and, and other people would answer. There is it's just another thing that doesn't make sense. There's a lot of stuff that makes sense in the film. You just have to understand. And like I said, you don't even necessarily have to understand the metaphor because I can't say that I understand every metaphor that was in this film. But you have to give yourself that suspension of disbelief in that first five seconds, say, here's the rules of the film. I'm okay with the reality of any film as long as the film doesn't break its own reality. And this one didn't seem to, at least to me. Um, the film did realize that a lot of what was going on was absurd, and some of the jokes that were in there were very... There was a lot of deadpan humor in here uh, as far as the dialogue. There was a at least a couple responses where someone like Colin Farrell was saying this and the, or you know this and this and this that would be absurd. Um, the woman that runs the hotel, she's telling Colin Farrell the kind of animal because you get to choose the kind of animal you turn into. She's like you know take careful thought because it uh, with the animal you turn into you, you you have to be that kind of animal. You can't be a um, like a camel with with a penguin. You you got to think these things over. That would be absurd to have a camel. Um, with with a seal or whatever it was, you know, the subtext being like none of the rest of this is absurd. Or when someone is describing to Colin Farrell the process it takes to turn a human into an animal, it's a somewhat lengthy but rather preposterous explanation. And after the explanation, Colin Farrell says, "Oh yeah, that makes sense." Uh, it's very obviously well, maybe not obviously because I don't think a lot of people got it. But th but that's the joke. That's the joke that the that there is some absurdity there. Um, it's just that some people don't know what's funny unless it's given to them on a laugh track. So anyway, this film's not for everybody. I um, I guess if I was going to be turned into an animal, I had to choose. 
I, I, I don't I don't know. I don't know how much memory you have of your former life or anything like that. Um, in the film, they said, uh, you know, everyone chooses dogs. That's why there's so many dogs on the planet. No one ever chooses anything, you know, exotic. That's why there's all these endangered species. Um, I think I'd like to be something like an eagle, even though I'm somewhat apprehensive of of heights. I think that would be a, uh, you're, you're rather protected, <laughs> mostly. You're fairly high on top of the food chain. Not too many things are going to eat you or hunt you. Um, but if I didn't have a choice, if I was just like turned into an animal just by accident, I ran into the transformation chamber, I, I'd probably just become a fat beagle. Um, all right, let me do a rank. I'm actually going to do a double rank. I was going to have do this rank with Beer Maker Matt. But he's not here, so I'm going to give you the five. I'm going to give you two of the five, so I'm going to give you the ten. I'm going to give you the five, the best things about being single, and I'm going to give you the best, the five, the best things about being in a relationship. The five. So first, the best things about being single, and this isn't my experience. A lot of these things I can name, people can do that are in a relationship. I'm just going to say, for, for me, from my point of view, these are things that are great about being single. One, going to the bathroom with the door open. Two, masturbating in any room of the house whenever you want. Three, not having to go to any social engagements that you have less than zero interest in. Four, being able to really focus or devote time into something like a hobby or a career or, or yourself. So, you know, a relationship does require a lot of time unless you're in one of those relationships where you're just like, relationship of necessity or need um, otherwise it ends up being neglectful but the type of effort that sometimes you need to put into a career or say if you are um, an athlete or someone that takes like a lot of, an actor um, you know when, when I moved to Reno I was spending a lot of time I, I ran twice a day went to the gym played basketball not the kind of thing I could do in a relationship very easy because that was going to take two three hours of my day that I wasn't at work so I mean that's a big portion of the day and it just takes a lot of dedication and focus hard to do those kinds of things in a relationship so that's a benefit and uh, the uh, last best thing about being single is the avoidance the easier avoidance of some negative feelings such as hurt jealousy anger you can still, of course, feel hurt and jealousy and anger, but I don't think you're going to feel them as much sitting at home, eating a, a Hungry Man banquet TV dinner for one, watching uh, reruns of Mama's Family or whatever. Um, so here's the top five things about being in a relationship. The five. So again, this isn't. This is about being in a relationship, not necessarily being like true love or the one. Or this isn't about the benefits of love. This is about being in a in a committed partnership. Okay, so this is going to be more practical than uh, romantic. So just keep that in mind. So one taxes. You get a much better tax break when. Well, this is more about being married than a relationship, but because um, you don't really get a tax break for being a relationship. But but being married, uh, taxes. Um, again, if you're married, you get better pay and better housing if you're in the military. Number three, um, someone to just kind of give you a heads up and, and, and tell you the truth, like uh, your zipper's down, uh, you know, before you leave the house, or you've got some spinach on your face, or you've got some, uh, you got some gravy on your butt. 
the, the kind of things that they can just let you know before you leave the house or even if you're out together or, you know, uh, you know, having someone say, oh, you, you drank a little bit too much or you're being a little bit inappropriate. Sometimes it helps to have that other person that not not necessarily has your self-interest um, at heart, but as a group, you're reflecting poorly on them. So you just want to, you know, you want to present the best unified unit uh, strength um front you 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 don't want to be embarrassed by your partner so you you give them the heads up um number four uh best thing about being in a relationship not feeling left out or feeling like a loser kind of the things i was talking about in the film where there's that stigma about being alone so you can do things like couples activities you don't want to be out to dinner where you know there's six uh, nine people six people and they're all couples except for you um, Valentine's Day, I, I don't really like holidays, and I don't really like Valentine's Day, but when I was single, it just, you know, I, I didn't want to go out by myself and just go to McDonald's or whatever, it's just, again, that stigma, like, oh, look, everyone's out with somebody except for that guy, um, and, and holidays, it's nice to have someone with you no matter what, if you're in a relationship, if you're in China, if you're in Turkey, if you're in Reno, that when it's Christmas or New Year's Day or your birthday, that there's someone there, at least one person, no matter where you're at, you're not going to spend that special day alone. And the last one being in a relationship is, is someone there to take care of you when you're ailing, when you're sick, when you're not feeling well, when you um, need some soup when when you need someone to call in work because your your throat's too rough to even call when you when you've um, gotten so drunk and hung over that you've missed your flight and someone needs to call and let the other person know that you won't be arriving at that certain time um, when you've got too zealous in eating your hot wings and a bone sticks in your throat and they can just punch you in the gut and knock it out so that is my double the five let's have a drink for that uh, it's fine to hit that, baby. Thanks, Hayden. Mm. We should get beer maker Matt to record a punch a baby sound for when he's not here. They're like my imaginary friends now. I just talk to my sound soundboard. Like uh, when Matt's not here and I'm lonely, I can just say, "Hey, Matt, um, tell me what what you what you like what you'd like to do." I'd have sex with a goat. Oh man. Okay. And um. What do you think about that, heathen? That's a wonderful cock. Well, I don't know if you're talking about Matt or the goat, but anyway, let's run into Last Call. Last Call. Looking at the world through the bottom of a glass. All I see is a man who's Last Call. So I think this movie is worth seeing for most people. Um, go and see it or wait for it to come on Netflix. Don't necessarily need to see it in the theater. Definitely a good movie to watch with a partner or alone and maybe talk to someone later. It's a good movie for discussion point. It would have been nice to have someone to have a discussion point with some of this film here on the podcast tonight. But nope, I'm all by myself. But we'll, we'll keep this a little bit brief. Next week we will be seeing the uh, Andy Samberg film Pop Star. And that should be fun. I don't have a whole lot else to say. So for episode 88 and the Potable Picture Show, see you next time and keep it wet. Oh my!
my neighbors are fast asleep And I can't find anything to drink Mackenzie's drank all the grain alcohol So I'm headed down the street to first call